0: You owe me, buddy. (laughs) Just kidding. We just sang about the debt that was paid, man. You don't owe me anything. No. Uh, Good morning, Mercy Fellowship. Oh, yeah. It's good to see you. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Man, I'm so uh, just pleased to be here with you today. As Curtis said, my name is Sean. I'm the pastor of Reach Church in downtown Everett. And I have been here before. I've led worship once here before and then preached, I think, maybe a year ago or so. Um, I also have the privilege of being part of uh, an external advisory board that just encourages, mostly just tries to encourage and be a support to Chris um, and to your team from afar. So it is a privilege. I am for you guys. I think of you often. Um, I talk to Chris multiple times a week. And uh, he's become just such a good friend of mine in ministry. Um, and, uh, and so I'm really happy that him and Tara get to be doing the things that they're doing this weekend. And so, like Curtis said, give them just a big high five and some massive encouragement when they get back um, that they would have been refreshed by that. So, uh, hey, if you've got your Bible, will you open up to Matthew chapter eight this morning? Um, you guys usually go through books of the Bible and so do we at Reach. And so um, my church is going through Matthew's gospel right now. And so I'm gonna bring you um, just a sermon In a passage that um, I'm really excited to share with you today as well. Uh, Matthew chapter eight, we'll be looking at 23 through 27 today. Here's a little bit of context of where Matthew's gospel is at. Um, In Matthew five through seven, if you remember, um, that is the section where uh, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Arguably the best sermon ever preached, right? Just incredible, incredible depiction and um, uh, explanation of what the kingdom of God is all about. And so Jesus spends time through those few chapters talking about the Kingdom of God and how it operates, and then when you get into chapter 8, there's a bit of a shift and you begin to see Jesus demonstrating the Kingdom of God. So as much as he spent time talking about it, now he's actually going to demonstrate through not only his teaching, but also his miraculous works through his physical ministry that he does, um, setting people free, uh, casting out demons, all kinds of crazy things that we read about in the New Testament. And where we're at in this part of the story is right at the tail end of Jesus going on a bit of a mini healing spree and then immediately calling people to a very high standard of discipleship. So he's been really busy in this chapter, um, and now we find ourselves uh, at this point where he and his disciples are moving to another territory. Um, If you are able today, um, I don't know if you do this in Mercy Fellowship, we do this at Reach sometimes, if you're able, would you mind standing as I read God's word for us today? Matthew 8, uh, verses 23 through 27 say this, as he got into the boat, the disciples followed him. Suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. He said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds... In the sea, obey him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity and the privilege that it is to gather as your church, as your people. Um, Lord, I thank you that, uh, that this local church exists in Marysville, that there have been people who have been faithfully here for six, 10, 15 years. Uh, God, those who came even in a prior, a prior season uh, with this building. Um, God, just so many years of faithfulness here. Um, and Lord I know uh, that you have your heart set on this church and that you care about this place and so I just pray that your your spirit would open up our hearts and our minds to receive from you today we pray that this word uh, would not return void and God ultimately all the things I will share this morning there's a lot of things I will say uh, personally but but Lord I would ask that what's most important and what's genuinely from you would be the things that stick in the hearts of the men and women here today we bless this community and uh, will you be blessed uh, by the time we've set aside to be with you and to come under your authority this morning? In, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, question for you this morning as we kind of get into this story. Uh, think about this. When was the last time you were in a really big storm? Like a really, really big storm. Uh, I had the chance uh, a couple uh, weeks ago um, to go visit um, my brother and my sister-in-law in Atlanta. And then a few months prior to that, um, I have some also some siblings in Houston, Texas. And so uh, this year I've had a chance to get out of town a few times, to go to a couple places in the South and just visit family, which has been really rewarding. Now, i got to say this, though. Um, you know, everyone thinks that Seattle is the place in the country that gets all the worst rain, Right? Like, if you talk to somebody from other parts of the country and you tell them you're from the Seattle area, they say, oh, you guys get a lot of rain, don't you? And you say yes, and you kind of feel, like, ashamed because we all know that's just part of what it means to live here. But have you been to the south? Like, honestly, think about this. Have you been to the south and been in the middle of a storm? Here's an example. There's a photo of some lightning. This is a a storm that took place in Houston. I didn't take this picture, but while I was in the area, we did have a storm like this and it was bizarre because it was like a beautiful day and then this massive storm hit and I saw lightning like this and I thought I don't see stuff like that in Seattle. Like you just don't see stuff like that in Seattle. Uh, Next we have a video. This is from my time to Atlanta. This is literally out of my brother's front window and uh, look at that. (laughs) Just the puddle that that truck just totally crushed. I I was blown away. It was again a beautifully nice day and I look out the window and out of nowhere the rain starts coming and I'm like, bro, what did you, why did you move to Atlanta? Like, you, you think it's better than Seattle, but you guys are getting this stuff. Like, you actually need umbrellas here. It's crazy. A lot of people have moved out of the area because of the weather and I get it. Western Washington gets hit really hard. Uh, but I, I sorry to, to, to beat this drum too much, but I, I had to know, is Seattle really the worst place to live in the country in terms of rain? And I want you to know this, friends, that if you're from here and you feel a little bit of shame about the weather um, and you're embarrassed to tell people you're from Seattle, I want to tell you, it's not even the place in the country that gets the most rain. Did you know that? No, in fact, the number one, according to worldatlas.com, the number one wettest city in the U.S. is actually Hilo, Hawaii the Hawaiians get the most rain. (laughs) And second, uh, actually I don't know what the second one is, I can't remember. Uh, The Seattle area doesn't come in until number three, but the funny part is it's actually Squim that gets the most rain. It's not even Seattle, it's actually Squim. That's besides the point. The point is this. No matter where you are at in this country, where you live, you're going to experience storms. And sometimes there'll be lightning storms. Sometimes you will see sideways rain. And sometimes you'll get the perpetual gray like we get. But no matter where you go or where you choose to live, you will experience a storm of some kind at some point. It's undeniable. And isn't that kind of true of life as well? It's true of life as well. In fact, we often think of hardships like storms, don't we? We use phrases like, I'm really going through it right now or when it rains it pours that's because it's not pleasant getting caught in a storm in fact it's downright scary sometimes and that can sure be the way life feels when we go through all kinds of hardships Now, the story we're looking at today deals with a real-life storm that Jesus and his disciples faced. And while it's literally about a physical storm, the way that I, I see Matthew positioning this story in his gospel serves to, I believe, tell a greater story about the life of a Christ follower. Now again, thinking about the context of where this story lives in Matthew's Gospel, uh, these ver- uh, the verses that precede this passage uh, are a story of Jesus calling his followers to a, a costly discipleship. He's calling people to follow him into the unknown territory of discipleship. And he set the bar quite high for people who are going to follow Jesus. We see in Matthew 8.18, the scene of a Jewish scribe coming to Jesus saying, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.'" Like making this very bold declaration of his faith, but he gives a caveat. Then he says, "'Let me bury my father first.'" Remember the story. And what happens is Jesus responds with a stern call to action, and he says in verse 22, "'Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In essence what he's saying is either you're all in now or you're not. You need to truly follow me and count the cost of following me now or you probably aren't following me to begin with. Now in the story that we just read you can assume that those who follow Jesus into the boat are his close disciples and we know that to be true based on who's in the boat and that those who stay behind are the crowds, maybe those who are intrigued by his teachings, but haven't gone all in on following him per se. It's almost as though Matthew is reminding the reader that when Jesus calls a disciple to follow him, he's not promising you that you'll be insulated from the storms. That's a bit of what we're gonna see in this story. Now, some context of where we're at geographically. Jesus and his disciples just got into a boat, and they're heading into the deep waters of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you don't know much about the geography of of some of the biblical stories, here's some things to know about the Sea of Galilee. For one, it's a relatively small body of water, say in comparison to, you know, like the Pacific Ocean. But it's quite a bit bigger than a place like Lake Stevens. Um, In fact, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, which I I googled this just to be sure. Um, It's roughly the length between Mill Creek and North Everett. So how many of you drive in the Boeing traffic and it just feels like you're there for an eternity, right? Like that is about how long that sea is. It's, It's about 13 miles long. What's also unique about the Sea of Galilee is that it's uh, its uh, its depths are kind of crazy. In fact, the the edge of the sea, or the the outer um, shoreline of the sea, is about 150 feet deep. So that in and of itself is quite deep on the peripheral. Uh, but when you get more towards the center, it it bottoms out around 680 feet below sea level. So it's it's incredibly deep uh, deep waters. Uh, another thing about the Sea of Galilee is that it's surrounded by mountains, which makes for a bit of an interesting weather climate. Uh, there are moments when the wind travels west over the Mediterranean Sea. It blows into, uh, over the mountains and spills into the Sea of Galilee, which can stir up the waters and create an incredibly dangerous and, and turbulent climate, especially if you're on a boat, Storms that hit the sea can produce waves, I read, reaching anywhere from 6 to 10 feet tall, even above the boat itself. And at points, uh, can easily capsize something like a small craft, uh, like what Jesus would have been traveling upon. And that's exactly the scene we find ourselves in here in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples get into this boat, and from there, let's look what happens. Again, verse 24, it says suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus kept sleeping. Verse 25, so the disciples came and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. Now, with all this context in mind. And with the picture that Matthew paints for us, you can imagine that this would be a terrifying storm to be trapped in. In fact, it's interesting to note that the Greek word used here for storm is actually often used to describe earthquakes as well. So let that fuel your imagination in terms of the intensity or the treacherous nature this situation would have invoked for these disciples. Additionally, the author notes that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Again, the Greek word here could be translated as swamped or even covered or concealed. So in other words, these potentially 10-foot high waves would have been filling the boat quickly, almost as if to swallow it entirely within just a few short moments. So picture the chaos. Picture the disciples. Lord, we're gonna die. They're freaking out. And what do we see as the storm is raging on? Jesus is asleep. He's asleep in the front of the boat. Uh, One commentator, F.F. Bruce, says that the phrase, but he was asleep, is grammatically designed to create this dramatic contrast that while the storm is intensifying and the disciples are shaking with fear, Jesus is asleep. Um, Personal story here. I remember... Uh, especially when we planted our church six years ago, Um, I used to struggle a lot heading into Sundays, especially with sleep. Uh, I, I, I am not great at sleeping, period, but especially on Saturday nights going into Sundays, it was very, very challenging for me. Um, For me, I came out of um, a ministry journey where I had been a worship leader, an associate pastor, I had led small groups, I had done graphic design, I had done all kinds of other things outside of lead and then eventually planting churches. So it was a steep learning curve for me, at least that's how I felt about it, um, to not only plant a church but then to be preaching every single week with no substitutes for up to 13, 14 weeks at a time maybe I get a sub from our sending church periodically, but it was just incredibly challenging to get used to that rhythm. And I would mull over my sermons on Saturday nights, I'd be thinking about it, I'd be thinking about who's gonna be in the room, will I have a church tomorrow, all of these questions, and it really produced some un- unwelcomed anxiety um, in my life, those nights leading up to preaching. Uh, to make matters worse, if there was some kind of a conflict in the church, or somebody in the church had criticized me for something or there was just some some obstacle before us, it would only add to the uneasiness I would carry in those sleepless nights. It was challenging. And it was hard for me to find rest while I was looking for security in my other circumstances. And that's true, I think, for a lot of us. Many times we're looking for rest. We're looking to be rested at times and in seasons where we're looking in the wrong places. For me, it was a struggle in my situation to believe that God would truly love and accept me even if I didn't preach a perfect sermon or if I didn't please everybody. Now again, that seems petty and trite and clearly I can theologically ration my way out of that but the way it felt to be in my skin and to wrestle with that tension it was it was as if the enemy was just exploiting my vulnerabilities and causing me to be just living in this perpetual state of anxiety I was so distracted by my circumstances that I failed to find rest in the actual true security I have that comes from Christ alone but I think that's what is so interesting about Jesus in this story sleeping at the front of this boat, it shows us that Jesus is categorically different than you and I, doesn't it? He's just different than us for many clear reasons, right? He was and is 100% secure in his relationship with his heavenly Father. In fact, David Guzik, a commentator, says that his mind and his heart were peaceful enough... Trusting in the love and the care of his Father in heaven, that he could sleep in the storm. And this idea makes sense. Craig Keener, another commentator, points out the fact that that the ability in those days to sleep during trouble was often a sign of somebody's faith that they had in God. So it's like to be unrattled in the midst of a crisis, or even particularly a storm, was evidence that they were at peace with God. Now, let me ask you this question. In the midst of the storms that you might be facing or have faced in your life, what is the posture that you tend to take? What's the posture you tend to take? Do you find yourself relating more to the disciples? Frantic, afraid, lacking confidence? God, I feel like I'm gonna die. (laughs) Or do you find yourself with a posture similar to Jesus? restful, peaceful, unworried. You know, I think we're living through an interesting time in history, and certainly in this time as a society, where we, I don't know if you notice these things, I I tend to, Um, it seems like a lot of people are really obsessed with things like self-help, and boundaries, and making life easier, and pace, And all these things, and many of those things are redemptive and good and have legitimate value to them. But it's interesting that for society that's so obsessed with these things, that it appears collectively we're more frantic and anxious than ever before. Have you noticed this? It just feels like people are stirred up these days. And many people will even look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, and they will say, you know what, we've progressed past these ancient ideas. It just feels old, it feels ancient, it feels like they're, you know, too traditional. We've moved on to greater things. We have AI now, right? We can program our lives. We can automate things. Yet paradoxically, many of those same people will find themselves reliant on prescriptions, to combat their clinical anxiety. They will be the same people that are consumed with hours of screen time, with their phones in hands, all while yearning for a sense of peace that eludes them. Is this something you might relate to today? And again, I am not criticizing somebody if when there's legitical, legit, legitimate medical concerns or, or reasons to be prescribed something by your doctor. Th- those conversations are oftentimes separate in some capacity, but how many times do we fail to actually treat the root issues? And many times it's actually the posture of our hearts and the habits in our lifestyles. There's an interesting book that came out a couple years ago by uh, a pastor and author named John Mark Comer. He wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he writes about the faulty pursuit of progress at the expense of cultivating a life that produces real peace. This is some of his indictments on our culture. He says, technological and even economic progress does not necessarily equal human progress. Just because it's newer and or faster doesn't mean it's better. What looks like progression is often regression but with an agenda. <laughs> it's an interesting thought. When we think we're progressing, when we think we're pursuing something that's gonna give us the peace that we're hoping for and then it doesn't, it, it, we have to be suspect of that and say, well, maybe there was an agenda behind this, or maybe this isn't quite promise, or uh, delivering on what it promised. So to bring it back to the story, could it be that the secret to human flourishing lies in understanding how Jesus himself maintained his peace. Or how about we do even one better? Maybe within Jesus himself, we can uncover the key to finding peace in the midst of life's storms. Now I would think there is, I believe there is, and I wanna show you why I think so. Let's look at what happens with the disciples um, as they wake Jesus from his slumber at the edge of the boat. Verse 25. Again, it says, The disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Kind of an ouch moment, right? Like, ouch. Jesus, like, you could have had a little more empathy on Your disciples, you're in a boat that's gonna get capsized. There's 10-foot waves crashing over you. I mean, like, these are fishermen that know how to handle a normal storm and yet they're terrified about losing their lives. Don't you think you're going a little hard on them today? Well, why does Jesus have the right to speak so intensely to these disciples? Why do you think? Well, I'll give you some reasons I think. First of all, I think he's earned the right based on what he's already done for them and done in their midst. I think he's earned the right with them, or at least he should have, (laughs) to some degree, earned the right. Recall, if you've read Matthew's Gospel, some of the things that Jesus has already done in front of his disciples. He's healed the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. He healed a sick and demon-possessed man. He cleansed the man with leprosy, virtually giving him his entire life back because he was so outcasted by society. He's been cleansed, now he can actually come back in and participate. He healed the centurion's servant. And he healed several other sick and demon-possessed people. There's just this catch-all statement in Matthew where it says, and then he healed a bunch of other people. And you're like, wow. Like, we don't even know how many in the first two chapters of Matthew he would have touched. See, Jesus has already demonstrated the authority to heal physical ailments of all kinds. So they've already seen him do this, but then take it a step deeper, right? Like what's happening in this story? Well, the reality was the storm wasn't the only thing that needed correcting in this story. In fact, it was the disciples' understanding of who Jesus was and what he was capable of that needed correcting as well. Uh, interesting observation from the, church, the early church father, John Chrysostom. He says this, that their awakening him was a sign of their lack of a right understanding of who he was. He says that they knew his power to rebu- rebuke when he was awake, but his power to rebuke when he was asleep, they had not yet grasped. Even after so many miracles, their impressions of him were still confused. See, the disciples still didn't quite understand the magnitude of who they were actually following. But this was about to change. This was about to change. Now, before we go too further, I want to address the phrase, you of little faith, for a moment. Now, you don't know me very well, I don't know you very well, so I don't want to assume that I know a lot about you and what you're processing or or kind of where you're at in life. I know my own church a little bit better, and I I know a lot of what people in my church are struggling through. And I will tell you this, um, when you think about stories like this and you think about words of Jesus saying things like, oh, you have little faith, I know that there can be in rooms like this at times somebody who would say, yeah, that is definitely me. I am the one with little faith. And there's this shame that kinda comes over us about feeling like we don't have big faith in Jesus or that we're struggling to trust him or to believe him. We feel like the right answer is, uh, I never have doubts ever. (laughs) I never struggle with anything ever. And that's just not real life. That's just not real life. We We are in a battle. And we are Now that doesn't change anything about who he is, or what's true, or what's secure. That's why we anchor ourselves to him, because he's the constant one, he's the stable one. But for many of us, we can struggle, whether it's just with temptation or anything else. And you say, yeah, I struggle to have big faith. I just wanna encourage you today, if that is you, that Jesus sees you as you are, he sees you in the struggle you have with your seemingly little faith at times. And I don't think this rebuke is meant to shame you, if that's you. I don't think he was trying to shame his disciples as well. I think moments like this are always an invitation to be stretched and to grow and to redirect and put our faith where it should actually be. The invitation it is to say, yes, I am struggling, yes, I feel like my faith is small, but it's to put our faith not in our ability to change our circumstances or anything like that, but to put our faith in the one we're actually crying out to. To say, Jesus, I need you, I, I do trust you, God, I believe, help me in my unbelief, and of course, I believe we have a God who is gracious, and who is eager to help us to grow and to expand our trust and deepen our trust in the power that we can only find in Him alone. Because that's exactly what happens to disciples. Right? That's exactly what happens to these men in the boat. With a word, their perspective on Jesus greatly changes and their faith increases look what Jesus does after he rebukes his disciples verse 26 B says this then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm so Jesus delivers doesn't he he absolutely delivers so he rebukes and corrects his disciples which I think is important for us to know that Jesus loves you doesn't mean that he just Accept, just accepts you carte blanche as you are and never asks you to step up or change anything, right? Like, we get called to the carpet sometimes. He challenges us, and he, he invites us to grow for our good, and that's what he does here. He, he corrects his disciples, but then he rebukes the storm itself. And I love the words in Matthew 4 in the parallel account. Jesus is recorded saying, Peace, be still, and the waters are stilled. Now, there's a couple different ways you can apply a passage like this or a story like this. One of them is to simply elevate the authority that Jesus maintains as one who is Lord over all creation. And I want to get to that one in just a second. But I think the second one, uh, oftentimes that people will do when they're applying this story, uh, that's more common and, and sadly propagated mostly through things like sermons, sounds something like this. Listen, are you facing a storm in your life? You're like, did I just turn on the Christian TV station right now, you know? Brother, sister, are you you facing a storm in your life? (laughs) Thank you, Chris, I appreciate you. In your marriage, in your workplace, well, if you sow a seed, right, or like in your health, rest assured, Jesus can calm these storms. Have you heard this before? Any of you late night TV watchers, like flipping channels and like watching that stuff every once in a while just to get a kick out of it, right? We've all seen it. Here's the problem, okay? The problem is that rather than letting the scripture dictate what it is, trying to communicate, many times people will bring their own hopeful outcome to the table. they say, I want it to say this. And if you have done any Bible study, this is like tip of the iceberg stuff. But that's a, that's a, a word called eisegesis, when you uh, bring your own opinion to the table, or to the scriptures, and then you kind of read it back into the text. Uh, and many times that's a, that's a surefire way to over-spiritualize something or simply just misinterpret what it says. Now, exegesis, which is what you guys tend to do here, is... To study the Scripture intentionally, deeply in its original context, trying to understand the timeless truths that are embedded in what's written in the Bible. Right? I think probably we'd all agree that's that's an advantageous way to approach the Scriptures. Now, don't miss this. I think a lot of times in the Christian faith. Uh, you know, you have kind of what you theologically believe, but then you have your actual practice of your day-to-day. This is how I actually live my Christian life out. And I think many of us, uh, the felt need or the felt pursuit we have um, is a more happy, comfortable life. Like we want to feel like I'm on God's team and this is to my benefit. And so a lot of people will come to church Uh, because they feel like it is a good thing to do. It's a a proper thing to do. It's a good tradition to hold. I want my kids exposed to good values. I'm going to serve because it's right and it's good. And because I'm on God's team, hopefully these storms of life will come less frequently or at least they'll hit a little bit less hard than they would if I were standing in direct opposition to God. I'm not going to be like a Like a Jonah or a Job, like at least if I'm on God's team, actually maybe I'll get preserved from some of the pain. Now I know that we could probably all reason theologically why we don't necessarily believe that, but how many times do we actually buy into that practically in the day-to-day? Can I tell you this? I don't think this story about Jesus calming the storm is specifically about how he wants to just calm the storms of your life. Now, can He? Do I believe that Jesus can and many times does calm the storms of your life? Or do do you think we should pray that He will? Oh yes, a hundred percent. Absolutely I think we should. Absolutely I believe He can. But you gotta ask yourself the question, what happens when the storm doesn't get calmed? Or what happens when the catastrophe hits and the result is painful, and not what my hopeful outcome was, then where's my hope? If my hope was in the storm itself getting calmed, then I might be disappointed when it doesn't get calmed. And so where is the hope in this story? I think the lesson, the hope that the disciples experience, and the lesson I believe you and I can learn from today is found in verse 27. Look at what happens. The men were amazed and they asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. What kind of man is this? Now, listen, if you're a disciple in the boat, no doubt you are so grateful that he calmed the storm, right? Like, well, I'm so, Jesus, thank you for calming this storm. I'm so glad I'm not dead now. What a gift, right? Like, we're so thankful that he calmed the storm, that it subsided. Obviously, this was the immediate felt need. But they weren't just amazed by the outcome of the storm. Matthew doesn't say, and then the disciples thanked Jesus for doing them a solid, and then they went on their business. No. Matthew says, they're amazed. What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Here's where I think the hope of this story is. It's this. The hope of the story isn't just that the storm itself was calmed. The hope in this story is Jesus' authority to silence the storm itself. It's in the authority of the one who is in the boat. It's in who Jesus actually is. See, in both cases, you would have reason to celebrate. You would be overjoyed that the storm would be calmed, But there's something that hits a bit differently about this story when you realize that you're dealing with a man who is unlike any other man, whose authority not only stretches over human bodies and and human ailments, but, but even over the elements of creation, which immediately set him apart from being just some guy that they found on the side of the road in fact any Jewish person who had decent exposure to the scriptures would have identified this because according to their understanding of God's power in the Old Testament it was only God who held ultimate authority over things like the sea look at one example in Psalm 89 it says Lord God of armies who is strong like you Lord your faithfulness surrounds you you rule the raging sea When its waves surge, you still them. Isn't this what Jesus just personified? He calmed the storm. I'm going to ask you guys to come up. We'll sing a couple songs here in just a moment. See, in just a brief moment, these disciples witnessed the entirety of Jesus' nature. They saw his utter humanity as he slumbered and yet his divine authority over creation, revealing himself as both God and man. And you might say to yourself, Sean, that's a great story, but it still feels like my life is hit with storms. It just still feels like, uh, is that just a, a good story that we can be somewhat inspired by, but it doesn't necessarily impact our day to day. I think one of the challenges in our culture is this, that we don't personalize stories like this enough. We don't personalize them enough. Our vision about them is either too blurry or we feel too far removed from the circumstances. It just was was so long ago, it was a different circumstance. I just, I, I have a hard time relating. Well, I want you to think about this. Just imagine this if you will. Imagine you got to visit some amazing theme park and go on an awesome roller coaster. It was a wild ride just filled with just all kinds of twists and turns and loop-de-loops and death drops and just absolutely exhilarating. And you're just so excited to tell everybody about what it was like. Now imagine the difference if you uh, were simply shown a video of that roller coaster from a friend or you look it up on YouTube and you're watching this video and you're like, oh, that's interesting, that looks kind of fun. But you don't experience it firsthand, right? It doesn't make as much sense. I think a lot of the reason why we struggle sometimes to feel the gravity of these stories, like Jesus calling the storm, is because it feels like we're watching from a distance. Because to some degree we are, we're 2,000 years removed from it. We can put ourselves in the position of spectators, on the shore while the disciples are in the boat holding on for dear life as the waves are crashing around them. But if you can, if you can imagine yourself being in that boat as the winds are raging and the waves are crashing and they're threatening to swallow you whole. In that moment, Jesus is not just some character in a story. He's not just a a theological concept. He is your absolute lifeline. He's everything you need. Your heart is pounding, your your palms are sweating, you're crying out to Him, and not as some distant figure, but as your only hope. He's the only hope you have. See, we do this with our faith sometimes, don't we? We know the stories, we attend church, we pray, we give, we serve and we move on. But think about those who witnessed Jesus on the cross, who saw him rise from the dead. For them, he wasn't just some nice addition. He was everything. He was everything to them. What if you had been standing at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus bear the weight of your own sin? At that point, he is no longer a distant historical event. It is personal. And that weight of your guilt and your sin and your shame and your brokenness have been carried on the back of the one who loves you more than you could ever comprehend. Church, I want to invite you this morning to take this story personally. You may not have been in the boat. You may not have been there on that particular night. Well, I can guarantee you weren't. (laughs) nor did you witness Jesus' physical body on the cross. But you know what? God it fit for these testimonies to not only be written down on the pages of our Bibles or on the screens in our churches, but that they'd be illuminated in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could see Jesus clearly. And you know what we see in this story? it's this, that you are not alone in the storms of this life. You are not alone. You are not alone. If you're a single person in the room today and you're dealing with incredible loneliness or a sense of where do I fit into this whole thing called the body of Christ, you're not alone. If you're an empty nester or a widow or a widower, or you've got a spouse out of town this weekend, or whatever situation you find you're in where you have felt like you're all alone, I want to encourage you this morning that you are not alone, that He is with you, He is with you, He loves you, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And if He is in the boat of your life, even when the storms keep coming, you can have hope that you are not facing them alone. I want to leave you th- with this final quote this morning from David Platt in his commentary on Matthew. This is what he writes about this particular story. It says this, the promise is not that all the storms in your life will end soon. The Bible does not guarantee this, nor can anyone else. Your cancer may not go away, and that struggle in your marriage may not end this week, or even this year. As a believer, your confidence is not that these storms will end very soon, but that in the midst of the storms in your life, you will never be alone. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ will be with you every step in the midst of the storm. Faith is not confidence that trials won't come your way, Faith is confidence that no matter what wind and waves come your way in this world, the God of the universe will be right there in the boat with you. His power and his presence will see you through. Christian, you are not alone. And ultimately, you are safe in the presence of the one who has ultimate authority over all disaster. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we can come together today and to read an incredible story, an incredible testimony of Jesus's power that reminds us not only can we find hope in the midst of the storms, but that Jesus, you are the authority over all things. You are the authority over human bodies. You are the authority over all creation. Jesus, you are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Most High God. And we declare that your rule and your reign and your dominion over our lives is our very lifeline. Jesus, I would just pray for anybody in the room today who may be going through a storm, maybe about to have a storm hit them, in a difficult way, God. You, you know the stories much better than I would or even their own Pastor Chris would. Lord, we we pray that you would come alongside them by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you'd remind them that you're with them, that you're sufficient, that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in their weakness. And God, their enduring is not dependent on their ability to white knuckle through pain, but ultimately, God, their strength comes from you and you alone. And we thank you that you promised to sustain us. That even when we feel like there's no hope, God, if we are truly in your, in your hands, then you promise to carry us and to sustain us. And we thank you for that, Lord. We bless this community? Bless this church family and give them what they need for today.